Welcome to the Climate Report. This is Hart Hagen, your host. And today we're going to talk about Hart's climate proposals. So the reason I'm doing this is because sometimes it's hard to see the forest for the trees. Sometimes it's hard to know who you trust. So I want to give you a different perspective, which happens to be my perspective. And the reason I want to do this is because there are a lot of bad ideas out there. Uh, and I want to, so let's talk about a, a couple of those bad ideas. One bad idea is getting energy from biomass and biofuel. So biomass is like, you know, let's chew up a forest and put that wood into an incinerator and supposedly generate electricity that way. And we'll pretend that it's renewable because aren't forests renewable? You know, don't forests grow over, over time? Or you have biofuels, which is where let's grow corn so that we can then make corn ethanol, which is a fuel that we can put in our gas tanks. And isn't that renewable? Isn't corn something that we can continue to grow over and over and over and over? Uh, and the reason that's a problem is because, you know, you're taking up a lot of land that would otherwise be used for food. That's one thing, uh, you know, corn ethanol causes uh, people to not have access to land for growing food, uh, let alone healthy food. Or you have sugar ethanol, so ethanol can be made from sugar cane, so especially in Brazil, in South America, they have a lot of operations where they're growing sugar cane and then converting that into ethanol. And one of many problems with that is that you have to drive indigenous people off of their land. So here are people that are living sustainably and have done so for hundreds or thousands of years. And you're driving them off of their land so that you can make biofuel for cars. So why are we making more fuel for cars? I mean, currently gasoline is like $2 a gallon. So do we want to drive that price down further by creating a glut of ethanol? Uh, you know, cheap ethanol. There's a lot of problems. So there's a lot of problems with biomass. There's a lot of problems with biofuel. Or another bad idea that you hear about is geoengineering. So geoengineering is a broad term that refers to a set of possible solutions that aren't solutions at all, because for one thing, most of them don't exist yet. So it, it's been proposed that, hey, the sun is shining on the earth and making it hotter. So let's take, uh, let's construct a 1,000 kilometer by 1,000 kilometer shield and put it in the uh, the Earth's atmosphere, so to block part of the sun. Well, for one thing, it hasn't been done. For another thing, you're messing with the climate and the weather patterns of the Earth. For another thing, it lets us off the hook when it comes to, oh, we can continue to churn out lots and lots and lots and lots of carbon because we're going to compensate for it with this huge shield that we're going to put in space or a similar scheme that is untried and a bad idea is, oh, let's put sulfur dioxide in the atmosphere. And when we put sulfur dioxide in the atmosphere, it artificially creates clouds. And we know this because when volcanoes go off, like Mount Pinatubo or Mount St. Helens, when volcanoes go off, it puts lots of sulfur dioxide in the air and 
that tends to cool the atmosphere but again it's untested and also you're messing with the weather patterns and the climate patterns and it's the same deal where we get off the hook we can continue to produce lots and lots and lots and lots of carbon because we're going to counteract the greenhouse effect with a solar with a shield or with sulfur dioxide but one thing that's for sure that biomass makes money for a few people biofuels make money for a few people uh, a gigantic shield would make a lot of money for a very few people and sprinkling sulfur dioxide in the air so as to cool down the earth would make lots of money for a few people so these are bad ideas but because they make money for a few people and because the oligarchs the plutocrats the richest people in the world own the media they can you know show us these ideas in a way that sounds sexy and cool and it's technology and it's almost science fiction but yet there are so many problems and it's not as if listen to this it's not as if you or I have had a fair chance to evaluate these ideas so it's just pro it's just propaganda all these these people that want us to believe in biomass it's propaganda sponsored by the few people that stand to profit from it biofuels you get propaganda sponsored by a few people who can profit from it and the same thing with geoengineering so there's no shortage of bad ideas another family of bad ideas is so-called renewable energy solar wind I mean, I'm not saying solar is inherently a bad idea I'm saying solar can be sold to us in a way that is neither sustainable nor renewable so solar power requires lots of metals for one thing so we're already getting our metals like lithium and coltan and cobalt as well as aluminum we're getting our metals from mines that employ slave labor can we please stop the slave labor before we ramp up to an industry uh, to can we stop the slave labor before we ramp up to say 14 times the amount of lithium so 14 times is a, a, the, about the amount that the lithium industry will be multiplied between now and 2030 if some of this Green New Deal material, some of these Green New Deal proposals get their way. Lots and lots of government sponsorship, lots and lots of technology, whole new industries being created according to Biden's climate plan. But is this good for the planet? Is this good for people? Is this good for our water quality? Are there any other ideas that we might use instead, instead of charging forward with ideas that we know to be problematic? So I'm not saying solar doesn't have its place. Solar does have its place. But if we're still producing, if we're still consuming the same amount of energy 10 years from now as we are now we're going to lose this game especially if we're can still consuming more if the total energy that we use continues to go up and up and up and up and up 
and 10 years from now, we're using 25% more, 50% more, maybe double the amount of energy, probably not double, but you know, 25% more energy 10 years from now is, is not a stretch. If we're still doing that, it won't matter how many solar panels we produce because the number of solar panels cannot compensate for ever increasing usage of energy. I heard something the other day from a reliable source that said this, uh, listen to this. The amount of increase in fossil fuel usage in recent years is more than the total amount of solar that's ever been produced, ever. So are we getting more of our energy from solar now? Yes, we are. But there's, that's not as much as the total increase in the amount of energy that we're using. That's not a game we're going to win. That's a scenario whereby we continue to use more and more and more and more fossil fuels. How is that a good thing? I thought the whole point was to get off of fossil fuels. So we need to look more at energy savings and uh, decreases in energy consumption. We need to look at conservation um, and, and some people may think that sounds like sacrifice, but I'm not talking about sacrifice. If I were talking about sacrifice, then we should talk about that because we really are in a situation in which, you know, we're, we're hitting up against planetary limits. We're looking at, you know, we're looking at um, some really catastrophic scenarios on the horizon. But I'm pointing you to a world that is more abundant than what we have now. So let me ask you this. How would you like half of your time back? Americans work more than any other people in the industrialized world. So it's clear that we're working more than we should be working or more than we have to work. We're also working more than we did 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, more hours per family. So why do we work more hours per family? Americans are more productive than they have ever been. We're double or triple as productive as we were 40, 50 years ago. So if a company is more productive, you would think that, hey, let's take more time off. We can produce the same thing, make the same amount of money, and take some time off. And the reason we don't have that time off is because you and I are not in charge. We're not in charge in, in the uh, we're not in charge in the realm of electoral politics, and we're not in charge in the business world. You go to work and you take orders from the boss and the boss takes orders from his or her boss and on up the line until the person that gives the orders is the person that brings the money. We have a plutocracy. Plutocracy is where money calls the shots. Plutocracy is the golden rule. Whoever has the gold makes the rules. And the people that have the gold and the people that are making the rules are the ones that determine how much we are going to work. So how would you like half of your time back? 
if you're going to get your time back, then things need to change, and we need to take this plutocracy and turn it into a democracy. We've been told we have a democracy ad nauseum since we were knee-high to a grasshopper, but if you look at it, we don't really have a democracy. It's more of a plutocracy. The money runs the show in the political arena, and money runs the show in the business in terms of you work for a hierarchical organization, the person at the very top of the hierarchy is the one that brings the money. So one reason we're working more than we ever have, even though we're more productive than we've ever been, is because we, the people, the vast majority, are not the ones making these decisions. Here's another reason I know we're working too much. Let me give you just two instances of reasons that I know we're working too much. One is we're paying for defense. So by my calculations, we pay about $5,000 per year per person in America to support the Defense Department. And not that just the Defense Department, but the military and all associated costs. And that's just out-of-pocket costs. That's not counting the cost of the military in terms of environmental pollution, in terms of decreased trade, in terms of the impact that the military has had on climate. I mean, look at the Vietnam War alone. We went there and dropped how many, how many millions of tons just millions of tons of insecticide known as Agent Orange, which contained a deadly chemical named dioxin. And as a result of that, there was lots of deforestation. Well, that's bad for climate, not to mention that it's bad for Vietnamese people. It's bad for our soldiers that had to be exposed to that. So the military has a lot of cost to it beyond the out-of-pocket costs, but the out-of-pocket costs are $5,000 a year, approximately, by my calculations, per person. How about we get rid of that? Because we don't need defense. We don't need a defense department that makes the world more dangerous. Who's a threat to us? Russia? They spend one-tenth of what we do on the military. Who else is a threat to us? China? China is a relatively defensive and peaceful nation. So this $5,000 per year that we spend on defense, part of that goes to foreign military bases. So the United States has in excess of 800 foreign military bases. And if you read the work of Chalmers Johnson, and you see, here's what really happens on those bases. There's environmental pollution. There's uh, rape and murder of local people. Uh, there is, you know, taking over their land that in... So, and we have 800 military bases around the world. We have 800, 400, we have, um, 800 foreign military bases around the world. So how many other foreign military bases are there around the world? I've heard something on the order of 30. 34, so, you know, these uh, other countries in the world, they have military bases, but most of them are domestic. The United States have something on the order of like 5,000 military bases within the United States, and then 800 foreign. But the scandal is that the U.S. has so many foreign military bases. Is that to defend us? I don't think so. I think those foreign military bases have to do with maintaining a worldwide empire. Do we need that empire? 
Does that empire benefit you or me? Does that empire benefit the American people? I submit to you that that empire does not benefit you or me or the American people. It benefits Wall Street. It benefits people who have a whole lot of money. So why are we the people paying $5,000 a year on so-called defense that is not really defense, and we're paying it so that rich people can get richer? The answer is that there's no good reason why we're paying all this. And here's the thing. Here's what I've been building up to. If we did not have to pay that $5,000 a year per person, we, would, we could work less. So let's work less. Let's spend less on defense and let's work less so we can have more freedom. So that's why I say, do you want half of your time back? How would you like half of your time back? How would you like to work half as much. We could work half as much if we eliminate the needless costs associated with living today, like defense that doesn't really defend us. Another needless cost is automobiles. So automobiles cost $8,000 per year per automobile. That's, you know, but you, you buy the car, some people finance the car, you uh, pay for repairs, you pay for gas, and you pay for maintenance, you pay for oil, you pay for new tires, you pay for insurance. So those are the costs associated with a car. So, you know, we have all, but we have all these cars. Why? I can assure you that we do not have cars because of any pro any process that was democratic or free market. You would think that, oh, we decided that you know, we would have the world's greatest democracy. So surely, we, at some level, we decided that we were going to have all these cars because of a democracy. But it wasn't a democracy, and it wasn't the free market. It was a, you know, it was a, it was a, it's an infrastructure that has been imposed upon us by big business and big government. Most of this started in earnest in 1945 and into the 50s. Most notably, the Eisenhower administration decided to build all these interstate highways. And this was at the behest of big business. You, you, it, it's not conspiratorial. It's just look around you and see. Government spends a lot of money building highways. Government spends a lot of money widening the highways. And how, how come government doesn't spend money on trains? Wouldn't that, you know, I, I heard a statistic that said, this is from Noam Chomsky, pretty reliable. I heard a statistic that said that the U.S. government in the 50s and 60s spent 100 to 1 on automobile infrastructure versus train infrastructure. So are we going to get around prime? And there are always many, many ways to get around. There's walking, there's bicycling, there's motor scooters, there's... Uh, so there are many, many ways to get around, but the question is, what is the backbone of our transportation system? Clearly, the backbone of our transportation system is the single, not single passenger, the six passenger automobile is the backbone of our transportation system. So the backbone of our transportation system is either going to be automobiles on the one hand, or it's going to be trains and secondarily buses. 
So why is it not? Why is it one and not the other? It's because the, it's because of the infrastructure that we build. If we're always building infrastructure for automobiles, then we're never going to get the infrastructure that we would need for trains. And I'm going to assume for purposes of discussion that it would be a lot cheaper for us to get around in trains rather than automobiles. But we have a whole system complete with urban sprawl, complete with suburban malls. We have a whole system that is made by and for the automobile. And it's because of government spending. It has nothing to do with democracy or a free market. It has everything to do with a plutocracy. It has everything to do with the golden rule. Whoever has the gold makes the rules, and the, you know, the automobile companies and the fossil fuel companies and lots of other businesses that stand to gain from a, tra from a transportation system based primarily on automobiles. Those are the people who made these decisions. You and I didn't make this, these decisions, and the American people didn't make these decisions. So here we are spending $8,000 per year per automobile on average. And if we were to get around primarily by trains, then the cost would be a fraction of that. Plus, if we got around by some combinations of trains, buses, walking, motor scooter, we would, do a little, we would be doing a little bit more muscle-powered transportation. Not everybody can do that, but many of us can, probably most of us can do some of that if we are given the opportunity, and that would be good for our health. So I've shown you two ways in which we spend you know, $5,000 a year per person on defense and uh, $8,000 per year on uh, per, per year per automobile. So that's a lot of money out of the family budget. A lot of money out of the family budget. So back to my original question. How would you like to work a lot less? How would you like to have half of your time back? And I'm just getting started. And if we had half of our time back, we would be more content living simpler lives. If we had our time back, then we would realize that what's really valuable in life is our time and our health and our relationships and our community. And we wouldn't have to be so enthralled with being part of a worldwide empire. The worldwide empire doesn't benefit you and me. So this is why Hart's climate proposals are quite a bit different from most environmentalists you will talk to because most environmentalists you will talk to, you know, they're good people and they're doing a lot of the right things, but most environmentalists you'll talk to don't uh, want to seriously reduce the amount of energy we consume. So let's say, for example, that we took my advice and we reduced defense by 90%. And we didn't have to spend $5,000 per year per person on it. There would be the fringe benefit of that. Of There would be a lot less carbon being put out into the atmosphere. Because all those boats, all those planes, all those helicopters put out a lot of carbon out into the atmosphere. Making all that ammunition puts a lot of carbon out into that atmosphere. Making all those satellites for military purposes puts a lot of carbon into the atmosphere. Plus all that technology. Anytime you have technology, anytime you have electronics, 
electronic technology, we are talking about a lot of mining because that technology requires metals. Something as simple, supposedly simple, as your iPhone. Uh, it, it takes a lot of uh, um, it takes a lot of metals, it takes a lot of carbon, it takes a lot of transportation. And then there are people who are going to work to make these things. And the, when those people drive to work, that takes a lot of carbon, it takes a lot of water pollution because metals cause water pollution. A lot of those metals are mined by slave labor. A lot of those metals cause the CIA and the military to get involved in military coups like we had in Bolivia. And then you have, you know, and, and that's at the behest, supposedly, you know, Elon Musk, the maker of Tesla car, the owner of Tesla that makes the cars, he took seemed to take partial credit for this coup in Bolivia. So we have all these military operations that are somehow justified by the need to make electric cars or the need to make solar panels, you know. So, so I'm saying reduce defense by 90%. And I'm saying let's take the money we're spending on automobile infrastructure and put it on put it into trains and buses and walkable neighborhoods. And I'm just getting started. I haven't told you one-tenth of the things or one-hundredth of the things that could be reduced by 90%. So whereas Joe Biden's plan, climate plan, says we need to create whole new industries. Uh, hey, how about we not? How about we not, and there's nothing wrong with creating a new industry from time to time, but thinking that we're going to, you know, stay within our planetary limits by creating whole new industries. It's ridiculous. It's absurd when you think about it, but very few people are invited to think about it because the media is owned by the very people who stand up, make a lot of money on, you know, 40 to $50 trillion industry, which is, you know, Bloomberg and Al Gore and people like that are talking about, wow, this is a 40 to 50 trillion dollar business opportunity, trillion with a T. That's lots and lots of money. But is that type of approach, is economic growth going to lead us to a place where we can stay within planetary limits? You know what I think I don't think so. If we're going to stay within planetary limits, we don't need to do more. We don't we need to do less. If we're going to stay within planetary limits, we don't need to be busier. We need to slow down. And when we slow down, we're going to say, "Wow, I've got my time back. I've got my life back." You know, the wor the way that most people live now, by, by the time you get home, and have a little bit of free time, it's time to get ready for work the next day. So how would you like half of your time back? So we have about a minute left. Let me leave you with something to think about. So here's a thought. Less is more. If we allow people to provide for their own needs in half of the work time, then they're going to be content taking a walk in the park instead of feeling like they need more and more and more electronic entertainment. You know, we can either continue to chew up our forests or we can, you know, not, every, not everybody wants to be out in the woods, but some of us do. And, you know, we can either chew up our forests 
or we can nurture and cultivate our forests. You know, we need to stop all this chewing up land for new buildings. So when I see this or that proposal for a solar array or windmills or electric cars or geoengineering or biomass or biofuels, I think, is that part of a plan to stay within planetary limits? It usually is not, and that's why I want you to be very skeptical of so-called renewable energy and uh, plans for electric cars and biomass and biofuels and conscientious investing where you're supposedly giving your money to somebody that's going to you know, create whole new industries so we can save the planet. A lot of it is just hogwash. I'm sorry to say it, but a lot of it is just hogwash. Be careful what you believe because there are a lot of uh, people out there that want to make a profit and they don't care about you or the planet. That's all the time we have. Thank you so much for joining me. Have a nice day. Welcome to the Climate Report. This is Hart Hagen, your host, and we are on episode number 260. Today the topic is people first. So what do I mean by people first? What I, what I mean by people first is that you know all of our public policies should put people first, and yet they don't, and not even close. So for example, top of the list, war does not put people first. So you know, the, the United States has been going for full spectrum dominance in its military strategy for a long time. Full spectrum dominance means domination of air, land, sea, space, and cyberspace. So we're going to go for full spectrum dominance. We're going to seek to dominate the entire world in the air, land, sea, space, and cyberspace. And yet, does that serve the American people? We know it does not serve the people in the countries that are unfortunate enough to be our enemies, like, you know, going back to Vietnam, Iraq, Indonesia, Guatemala, Libya, Syria. These are just a few countries that have been unfortunate enough to be the enemies of the United States. And we know that when the United States goes for full spectrum dominance, that it, it does not serve the people of Vietnam or Syria or Libya or Iraq. But also full spectrum dominance does not serve the people of the United States. So our defense policy, our foreign policy, is one example of a policy that does not serve the people first. One would think that all public policies, especially in a democracy, should serve the people first, and yet our government, in many respects, our public policy does not serve the people first. 
So how does this relate to climate? This is the climate report and everything we talk about should at some level relate to climate. And our goal here in this show and in the climate movement is and should be how to solve the problem of climate change. So how do we solve the problem of climate change? Well, if you ask Hart Hagen, the way you solve the problem of climate change is to make sure we have a government that is of, by, and for the people. So we've been told that our government is of the people, by the people, for the people. That's a famous line from Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. He said, you know, we're here to ensure and hope and wish and pray that the government of the people, by the people, for the people shall not perish from the earth. Those are strong words. Those are poetic words. Those are words that we all feel in our hearts. We want to have a government that is of the people, by the people, for the people. And we want to know that our government is of the people, by the people, for the people. After all, we are the United States of America, and we are the strongest democracy on earth. We are the longest living democracy. I mean, there was a democracy way back in Greece, but didn't include women or slaves. But then that was way a long time ago, and then Rome had something of a republic, but that was only for people who owned land. And then the United States came along and we rebelled against the king. And the story that we've been told in our history classes is that we rebelled against the king and we established a democracy. So legend has it that Benjamin Franklin came out of Independence Hall in Philadelphia at the end of a constitutional convention, and he was asked by a woman on the street, Mr. Franklin, what kind of government have you given us? And Franklin responded, a republic, madam, if you can keep it. So when he said republic, he meant a democracy, a government of the people, by the people, for the people. And yet, in modern-day America, we have to seriously ask, do we have a government that is of the people, by the people, and for the people? Well, let's put that theory to a test. And let's say, you know, recently, like after the election, this is in 2020, where Biden uh, beat Trump, and there was a Fox News poll that, you know, polled people on several different issues. But one issue is, do you want a government-run health care system? And 70% of people said yes. So this is in the election of 2020. And this, is, this poll is being taken of people that are coming out of the voting booth. But when people were in the voting booth, they did not have a choice to vote for a candidate who was for Medicare for all. They did not have a choice to vote for a candidate who was for a government-run 
healthcare system. So even though 70% of the people, according to a recent Fox News poll, even though 70% of the people were for Medicare for all, you could not vote for Medicare for all when you went to the polls. So we have to seriously ask, do we have a democracy? If you can't go to the polls, if 70% of people are in favor of Medicare for all, and you cannot go to the polls and vote for Medicare for all, then do we have a democracy? If most people want war to be a last resort, and, you, and yet you can't go to the polls and vote for anybody but somebody that's, you know, a warmonger. Joe Biden, warmonger. Donald Trump, warmonger. You have a choice of to voting for warmonger one, number one or warmonger number two. Those are your choices. So is that a democracy? If you can't go to the polls and vote for somebody who wants peace? Most people in the United States of America want uh, marijuana to be decriminalized. And yet you can't go to the polls and vote for somebody who wants to decriminalize marijuana. Most people in the United States of America want to be able to get money out of politics. Most people, conservative and liberal, Republican and Democrat, in the United States of America want to get money out of politics. They don't believe that money should be the driving force in an election, presidential election, congressional election, state legislatures, governors, mayors. Most people overwhelmingly in the United States of America do not want money to be the driving force in elections, and yet that's what we get, and you're not going to find a candidate except in rare cases you're not going to find a candidate who is against money in politics, money funding elections. Which is only to say that we have to seriously ask, do we have a democracy or a plutocracy? Plutocracy is where money runs the show. Democracy is the rule of the people Plutocracy is the rule of money. Plutocracy is the golden rule. Whoever has the gold makes the rules. So how does that relate to climate? It, it's like this. So if our system is whoever has the gold makes the rules. So our system is driven by money and our system is therefore driven by people who have the money. Therefore, our system is set up to favor the people who have the money. For example, a corporation is not the only way to set up a business enterprise, but it is the way to set up a business enterprise if you're in the United States of America because the corporation is a vehicle that favors those who have money. Not only a corporation, but a big corporation, a big, large, gigantic corporation is a vehicle that favors those who have 
money. As David C. Corton says in his book, When Corporations Rule the World, the larger the corporation, the more skilled they are in shifting their costs onto the public. Shifting their costs onto the public means that it means they can decimate our democratic institutions. Shifting the costs onto the public means they can pollute our waterways. Shifting the costs onto the public means they can exploit labor by destroying unions. And shifting the costs onto the public means that they can constantly oppose a minimum wage, even though if you had a higher minimum wage, that would be good for communities. But more to the point, if you had a higher minimum wage, they wouldn't be able to give their employees a form that says, here, we don't pay you very much, but here's, some, uh, here's a form where you can apply for government benefits. So you have major corporations like Walmart that routinely, when they hire you, they give you a form that says, and here's a form you can use to apply for government benefits. Nothing wrong with applying for government benefits, but if a corporation is making all this money, so the Walton family has more money than God. The Walton family, uh, you know, they're in the Lucky Sperm Club. They, they came out of the right womb. They have all this money, not because of anything they've ever done, because they inherited it from Sam Walton. You know, we could talk about whether Sam Walton, the patriarch and progenitor of the Walmart family, we could talk about whether he earned that money, but, there, but then he passed it on to his children and grandchildren, and they get to have all of this wealth even though they did not earn it. So on the top end of the food chain, you have people that are the wealthiest in America, and at the bottom end of the food chain, you know, the, the Walmart employees, are not being paid a living wage. So they're not being paid enough to live on, and yet the shareholders at the top end of the company are among the richest people in America and the richest in the world. Which is to say that we have a plutocracy. The people who have the money make the rules. It's the golden rule, whoever has the gold makes the rules. In this example, the owners of Walmart make the rules, and the thousands if not millions of people who work for them do not make the rules. So it's not hard to see how, you know, it's not democratic. You know, the, the company of Walmart is not democratic because the people at the bottom don't make the rules. And Walmart lives in a political environment in which the Walmart employees, as citizens, cannot vote to change the rules that govern their workplace or their community or the foreign policy, etc. So this, this episode is about people first. Let's put people first. How does that relate to climate? How does it relate to climate to put people first? 
How are we going to solve this problem of climate change? So this is the climate report. We're talking about how to solve the problem of climate change. And Hart Hagen says that one of the main things to do is for us to have a democracy. That's it. Have a democracy. We could say, let's get back our democracy. But then you could say, well, maybe we never had much of a democracy to begin with, because in the beginning, only about 6% of people could vote. If you were white, male, you had property, then you could vote. Otherwise, meh, not so much. So let's put people first. Let's have a democracy, because a democracy is not going to make a mess of things the way the plutocracy has made a mess of things, because plutocracy is driven by money, and money just wants to grow and expand. I've heard it said that our system is not run by capitalists, it's run by capital. Because capitalists are just people, and people are just caught up in a system. And they're caught up in a system in which, that is driven by the need for capital to expand. And one way for capital to expand is for Joe Biden to have a climate plan that says, we have an opportunity to create whole new industries. Okay, Joe, whole new industries. We're going to create whole new industries. But is that what we really need to do? Do we need to create whole new industries or do we need to slow down? Slow down. Less is more. Maybe we need to create whole new industries, or maybe we need to slow down, work less, and stop doing stuff. Like, you know, one of the things we do when we create whole new industries, one of the things we're doing is we're building stuff. We're changing land use. So changing land use means here's a field. Let's build a building on it. And then we're going to build a building on it. Maybe that building is a factory and the factory has toxic waste and the toxic waste goes into the water. And that's what happens when you create whole new industries. Maybe we need to not do that. In fact, maybe we need to say no new buildings. Do we not have enough buildings? I've heard something to the effect that, you know, we have a lot more vacant homes than we have homeless people. So we have lots and lots and lots of homeless people, but we have even more vacant homes. It's like, hey, can we get some homes for these homeless people? Uh, homes right over here. Homeless people over here. Homes over here. Out. Oh, homeless people. Here are some homes. Why can't we do that? Do we need to build more homes? We already have more homes then we have homeless people. We have more vacant homes than homeless people. One would think that maybe, just maybe, we don't need more homes just yet. And yet, what are we doing? Building homes and building homes and building homes. Why are we building homes? Well, because these people, they built this factory and these people needed to move close to the factory. But why did they build a factory? Well, maybe they built the factory for the military-industrial complex. Well, we don't need that. 
Maybe they built a factory because they're supplying parts for cars. Well, we need to reduce the number of new cars we have. We need to reduce defense by 90%. Reduce defense by 90%. We need to reduce new cars by 90%. Reduce new cars by 90%. We need to reduce air travel by 90%. Reduce air travel by 90%. You might say, Hart, I like air travel. I like getting on a plane and going somewhere. Well, here's my response. Yeah, you like getting on a plane and going somewhere, but you don't know what the alternatives are because we have not really seen the alternatives. How would you like a world in which you have to work half as much as you do now? This is what I talked about last episode. We, why do we work so much? Well, partly we're paying for our cars. But, you know, cars are not a given. The backbone of the transportation system can either be cars or it can be trains and buses. Do we want cars? Do we need cars? Or car, are cars something that has been imposed upon us? If you look at the history, going back to the 40s, 50s, and 60s, cars are something that was imposed upon us because the government decided, at the behest of major corporations, but the government decided that it was going to build lots and lots of highways for cars instead at a ratio of a hundred to one the spending the ratio of spending on on highways versus spending on trains was about a hundred to one that it for number one that is not an accident number two it's not democracy number three it's not the free market so we don't have all these highways because of democracy or a free market. We have all these highways because of big government and big business. So if we're building factories to make the parts for the cars, well, we really need to look at that because automobile transportation is a serious burden on the environment. This is the climate report. We are talking about how to solve the climate crisis, one major component of solving the climate crisis is to change our transportation system from one where you have to have a car to get around to one where maybe you can get around via train, via bus, via walking, via biking, via uh, motor scooters. Most people would prefer not to spend $8,000 per year per car because that's the average according to the American Automobile Association. In fact, I've lowered that number just a bit because I don't want to exaggerate. I'm giving you a conservative figure for how much it costs to own and operate a car. It's about $8,000 or more per year per car. How would you like to have that back in your family budget? So we spend too much money on cars out of the family budget. We spend too much money on defense out of the family budget. So what if we could reduce the demands on the family budget and have a situation where we could work less? Then if we work less, we wouldn't have to travel as much. If we don't have to travel as much, then that eases the burden on the climate. Plus, if we work less, we wouldn't have to have uh, so many other people cooking our 
meals. When we work more, we tend to need more fast food. And that is a burden on the environment. It's a burden on the climate. This is why I'm saying what we need is not what Biden says in Biden's climate plan. We need to create, we can create whole new industries. No, we don't need to create whole new industries. We need to slow down. We need to enjoy life. We need to have more freedom. We need to do what we want to do instead of what we have to do. We are slaves to a system that extracts from us money for our cars. We are slaves to a system that extracts from us money for the defense budget. The defense budget costs us three to five thousand dollars per year per person depending on what you count. And you know so Biden and others see a lot of the conversation around renewable energy is driven by Wall Street. Wall Street wants nothing more than to get a lot of government subsidies for solar panels and windmills and electric cars. They're already getting lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of subsidies for these things, especially electric vehicles. Show me one square, show me one cubic centimeter of an electric vehicle that was not uh, that does not owe a lot of its existence to government research, not least of all the technology that goes into them. Technology is a creature of government, especially the decades of basic science that's needed for technology, like computer technology. The reason, the reason we have computer technology, I would like to share with you why we have computer technology. Can I share that with you? The reason we have computer technology is because your parents and mine, your grandparents and mine, your great-grandparents and mine paid taxes. They paid taxes to the government. The government took the money and gave it to the Pentagon. The Pentagon is the Department of Defense. The Department of Defense is almost entirely responsible for the existence of computer technology. Computer technology was not feasible or marketable for the longest time. They started developing computer tech, you know, computer technology goes back to Pascal a couple hundred years ago, but you know, electronic computer technology started in, in the, you know, the mid forties, it really started to go. Uh, because of the war effort, and then in the in, into the 50s, you have lots of investment in government tech. You, know, you have lots of government investment in computer technology. It was not marketable. None of that crap was marketable until the mid 60s. So at least 20 years of serious government investment goes into computer technology until you get to the mid 60s, when. IBM and Digital Equipment Corporation could then, you know, it was then available for marketing to large companies. And then you get into the 70s, you have microchip technology. The first microchip was on a guided missile. 
uh, you know, a new uh, intercontinental ballistic missile had the first microchip. So lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of government technology, government spending because of your grandparents, great grandparents and mine, lots and lots of taxpayer money going to the government to create computer technology to begin with. Not just the microchip, but also the internet. The internet is a creature of DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. So what I'm saying is that when corporations make profits, especially when those profits depend on technology, they owe a lot to the government, especially the federal government, and therefore they owe a lot to the taxpayer. So when you talk about solar technology and wind technology and electric vehicles, then those products are created by companies that are feeding at the government trough. And they want to feed at the government trough because that's mainly how you make money. Show me somebody who has lots and lots of money and I'll show you somebody who's feeding at the government trough. Another thing about people that are making lots and lots of money is that they own, collectively, they own the means of communication, so they own the media. So whether it's entertainment media or whether it's news media, they are telling us the stories that we buy into and then that's how public policy is made. So I've got about a minute left. Let me leave you with something to think about. This episode has been about people first and we're laying the groundwork for how we can put people first because if we're going to solve the climate crisis we have to put people first especially future people and also people in other countries who are the primary victims of the climate crisis and they're already the primary victims of the climate crisis so in future episodes we're going to keep on talking about how to solve the climate crisis by putting people first I hope you will join me for that. Have a great day. Bye.